welcome to episode 1021 of Effectively Wild, the baseball podcast from Fangrass, presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangrass. Hello. Hi. Doing a season preview episode, so we'll be talking first to Pete Beatty about the Cleveland Indians, and then second to Kat Garcia about the White Sox. So before we get to anything else, we have to follow up on the fart from yesterday (laughs) (laughs) that we talked about at the end of the episode. Someone sent us what seemed to be visual evidence of Adam Lind farting during a plate appearance from last September. This got a lot of responses and people had various interpretations and I don't know what to make of this anymore. So the main response, the best response was from the great Meg Rowley, who wrote an article about this for Baseball Prospectus that began with the sentence, let's just assume that Adam Lind farted. (laughs) (laughs) So she did a lot of research. She found, first of all, something we hadn't picked up on, which is that Adam Lind wears very tight pants and has always worn tight pants. And perhaps that played some role in this. You could imagine that these pants would be constricting that he would need some relief. Anyway, that seems to be a a consistent trait of Adam Lynn that people on Twitter had noticed before. She also went back and watched the rest of this game, looking for any moment at which Adam Lind might have applied chalk or slid or gotten something on his pants, and she couldn't find anything. But she did find a moment in the third inning in his first at-bat of the game where there seemed to be what she calls a warm-up toot. And (laughs) (laughs) this is on another taken pitch. And this is what makes me suspicious. So Hmm. he sticks out his butt on this take also. And it's maybe not quite as violent a motion, but he does back up sort of as the pitch crosses the plate. And we had a couple people email us to suggest that Maybe he had some sort of talcum powder or baby powder applied on some part of his body that I don't want to think about in too much detail. (laughs) And or that maybe there was some sort of grip thing that he had like a rosin bag in his back pocket, for instance, to get a better grip on a hot summer day. Who knows? So is it possible? And someone else sent us a couple gifts. A listener named Charles showed us a gif of the very next pitch when he singled after the fifth inning possible fart. And (laughs) there is what seems like a much lesser version of it in that motion when he also sort of takes a, a violent twist. So is it possible that this motion he is making on all of these pitches and swings is disrupting something that he has either applied to his body or has in his back pocket And that is producing what seems to be some sort of a mission. Yeah. So I had, not only did I have a conversation with you about this alleged fart yesterday, literally for work, but (laughs) then after work, I had a conversation about it because I could not show it to my girlfriend and we had to talk about it. It was like, hey, what did you, how was your day? Well, I'll show you. Actually, I'll show you on Twitter. So we had a conversation and she was hesitant to believe that it was a fart as I think we we all are inclined to be hesitant, as Meg wrote in the piece. When's the last time you saw a fart? <laughs> right. uh, so what my girlfriend kept trying to propose was that it was just something about the fact that he kind of bends, right? And when we were mm-hmm. having this conversation, I only knew about the one clip. I didn't know there were other puffs in mm-hmm. the same <laughs> game. 
Uh, so <laughs> I couldn't figure out how it's a gentle bend. And like when he checks the swing in the in, in the original GIF, it's a very gentle bend of the knees and the body. The, the mm -hmm. check swing is not violent. So I couldn't figure out why something that subtle would cause essentially like a butt sneeze if we're going to be honest about what this looks like it's like the right. velocity of it coming off of his body is such that i couldn't think of it didn't seem like it was a a soft disruption yeah. but for it but to happen the pants are so tight right right the pants are tight for it to happen th at least three times in a game is <laughs> notable and i wonder if first of all there could just be chalk on the bench you know, there could, you, he could be sitting in stuff anywhere. It doesn't necessarily have to be televised or on the field of play. Maybe he just kind of fell down when the camera's focused on the pitcher and, and nobody really caught wind of it. Caught, mm -hmm. caught wind. That's a, that's a funny <laughs> mistake. But I wonder I wonder now, I still I, I still badly want to believe, this is kind of like Bigfoot, right? Like I want to believe. I, want, I am like 60% down from 95% convinced that this is Adam Lind visually farting now multiple times during a baseball game, which would be maybe even worse than just the once. But I think there is, I don't know, a 35% chance that there's just something in his pocket or on his butt that he like sat on. And then there's like a fold in his clothes that gets straightened out mm -hmm. as he's kind of, as he's moving, as he's kind of like bending. And then, you know, if you kind of straighten out your clothes, then that fold can uh, can disappear quickly with force. Or alternatively, it could be a very tight part of his clothes that then becomes bunched up when he bends. And then that creates a fold, kind of like tectonic plates, right? Except uh -huh. faster and more forcefully. And so then then something would come off. So I, th I think for me right now, I stand at 60% fart, 35% clothing mishap, and 5% unexplained. <laughs> well, if Animal Planet can keep finding Bigfoot going for nine seasons and counting, surely we can keep this segment going for more than two episodes. So if you have thoughts, then please feel free to weigh in. Perhaps we will revisit this in a future episode. I, of course, want to believe, and so <laughs> I, I almost don't want to look too much further into this, lest we discover something sad. But it was heartening to hear that everyone else was as, as mesmerized by this gif as we were, and seemed to spend slash waste as much time watching it. So <laughs> you understand that there's one way for us to get the best the most insight we could ever get. There's only one way for us to do that, right? You get that? Ask Adam Lind. Ask Adam Lind. <laughs> well, that's possible. We asked the Reds about their player weights. We could ask. <laughs> I mean, don't tell him what you're going to ask him about when you're asking for the interview. <laughs> Just say hello and then spring this on him. We can uh, ask him about his new contract that was just finalized or something. I don't hey, what know. do you maybe think? Maybe that can be the cover. Do you think you need? Do you think hypothetically, if you're talking to Adam Lind, maybe for the Ringer podcast, do you think? Do you think this is something you like have to build up to, or do you just go right for it? Because you know, <laughs> if he's gonna hang up or not respond, do you, can you build up to asking a question about? Hey, did you fart on September fifteenth? <laughs> <laughs> or whatever it was. I would probably want to elicit his whole life story. I'd want to make him feel pampered and valued and like the most important player in the world. And then just before we said goodbye, I'd drop it in like, hey, by the way, I know this is silly <laughs> and this is not at all why I wanted to talk to you. But while I have you, <laughs> I guess you, you I could do. even you could even try to get information about it. Before you ask the specific question, you could ask, like, hey, do you ever like keep a powder in your back pocket? Mm, do you ever find yeah. that your pants are like coated in in 
dust or chalk. And then you kind of like get the peripheral stuff before you ask like the bombshell question. Because that way, even if he's like, go to hell and then he hangs up, at least you have a little more, a little more to go on. Right. And then you could ask ask the catcher. Good thinking. All right. Next bit of banter. One thing I want to mention, I don't know if you're familiar with the long-running, effectively wild meme of Matt Albers and Ryan Webb and Mm -hmm. their pursuit of saves. These are the two guys with the most games finished ever without ever recording a save. So we've been tracking this for years now. Occasionally they've had a close call, but mostly not. They don't even (laughs) really get chances to have close calls. And it fascinates me because usually you pick up a random save somehow. I mean, there are guys who are not closers who just come up and they're rookies and something weird happens and it goes to extra innings or they pitch three innings in some strange bullpen game and they get a save and they're on the board in that mostly meaningless stat. But Ryan Webb and Matt Albers have been pitching for many years now. They are often the person who comes in to finish a game when it is not a save situation, but somehow they have managed never to get the actual save recorded. And so I'm always kind of hoping that they'll do it, but also hoping that they won't because I like that they haven't. Anyway, an eagle-eyed reader slash listener noticed that Pakoda is projecting Matt Albers for a save this season really which which seems odd given that he has never had one in quite a a lengthy (laughs) career so i had to ask how pakoda arrived at this conclusion that matt albers would record a save this year so i asked rob McEwen, who is sort of the steward of pakoda these days and he told me that there are four basic factors that enter into Pakoda's saves projections. And I think right before the season, someone who manually does the depth charts at Baseball Prospectus will just project saves by hand based on who's anointed as the closer. But Pakoda does do it algorithmically for the book and earlier in the winter. And to do that, it counts save opportunities, so saves plus blown saves in the past couple seasons, as well as save percentage, as well as projected games relieved, and deserved run average. So it takes all of those things into account. And Matt Albers does have some blown saves, mostly not coming in what we typically think of as a a save situation, sort of earlier in the game, a, a hold opportunity more than anything that he blew. So he has some of those. He is projected for 43 relief appearances, which seems like probably a lot, but who knows? He's with the Nationals now. Webb is with the Brewers. And so those combinations of things push him to 0.5408 projected (laughs) saves, which rounds up to one save. So Matt Albers, Pakoda thinks that this will be your year. Wow. Pakoda projection explained. Just just glancing over last year's numbers, Mark Lowe led everyone with 26 games finished and no saves. But then after him, Ming Wong, who I didn't realize was in the major leagues, finished 24 <laughs> games and recorded zero saves. And also Michael Tonkin, which is a name I've never heard of before. Apparently, he pitched four or at least in Minnesota. And he finished 23 games and no saves because I don't think the Twins got any saves. So that's that's last year. But how do you know off the top of your head what the list is is looking like the all time? Because I can tell you like Dan Otero, for example, he finished 20 games last year, wound up with one save. That's the kind of guy just like Webb and Albers you'd think would just kind of happen into one 
from time to time. There's no reason for mm-hmm. Otero to get a save with the Indians, not with Miller and Shaw and Allen, etc. But, you know, there's one. It happens. Ross Ollendorf apparently had two saves last year, which yep. I never would have guessed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. you don't necessarily have to be a good pitcher to, to do it. It just happens to most people. When I wrote about it, I wrote about this for Grantland, and I talked to both guys, and I played snippets of the interviews on Effectively Wild. There had been something like 570 pitchers who'd gotten saves over the previous 10 years or something like that, and you know, mo- a lot of them were closers and guys you know, but a lot of them were totally random relievers who just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and somehow neither of these pitchers ever has been. <laughs> I just ran a play index. Ryan Webb is the all-time leader with 105 games finished without a save. He has crept ahead of Albers, who is at 99. And then you have to go all the way down to Jose Mijares and Carlos Almanzar at 63. So 36 games finished behind Albers. That's the third place people. And I think Fernando Abad was up there for a while, but then he finally got a save last season. So really, there's no one close. I mean, there's no one within a few seasons even of Albers and Webb. They are outliers and just keeping each other company. So I love them. The other thing I wanted to bring up is about the Red Sox and bunting to beat the Mm -hmm. shift. So the Red Sox have made comments. John Farrell's made comments to the effect that the Red Sox are going to bunt to beat the shift much more often this season. He said that we've seen that even with guys coming in the first part of their career, guys are really starting to get shifted against when we're on offense. We've got some things that we'll look to do, hopefully take back some of those lanes that are otherwise shifted away from the bat handlers that can work the ball the other way, or who are the guys that can more readily drop a bunt down to take advantage of that shift. That's one thing that we'll look to do more of. And you and I have both written about this, and I've certainly advocated this in the past. It just seems with shifts becoming more and more common and how successful bunts against the shift have been when players have done them, which is pretty rare. It seems like something you should do more often. You do it a couple times. Not only might you get a few free base hits out of it, but hopefully you'll persuade the other team to go back to a more normal alignment the next time you're up. And there are a few hitters who do this with some regularity, like Anthony Rizzo, but it's pretty rare. People always called for David Ortiz to do it, and he basically never did. And so anyway, this is interesting. I hope it happens, but this also falls into the genre of things that a team says it's going to do in Mm -hmm. spring training, which is not nearly always the same things that it does once the season starts. So I have little faith that they will actually do this much more often than they've done it in the past, but fingers crossed. Last year, the uh, Houston Astros had the most bunt hits in baseball at 32. The league average team had 16. The Red Sox were last with three. They were below the Baltimore Orioles, who you will remember for never stealing or hitting any triples. Real quick, right. just to throw in some stuff, I was looking at a uh, at the baseball reference leaderboard when we were looking up game finishers without saves. So I was a little surprised to see that the Houston Astros, unrelated to that, led the league also in wild pitches. They had 98, the second most in baseball. Uh, the Braves had 83. League average was about 60. So the Astros, not necessarily a hard-throwing pitching staff, led the league in wild pitches. But what's weird to me is uh, so in 2015, Garrett Richards led all of baseball in wild pitches, which isn't a surprise. I think you think of Garrett Richards and you think of the ball getting away from him and also the person to whom he was throwing. Can you guess, just given the Astros information, who led all of baseball in wild pitches last year? Here's a hint. You can't. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> it's Mike Fires. 
Mike wow. Fires led all of ba- I mean, I, I assume it has to do with the big loopy curveball he throws, but mm-hmm. Mike Fires, of all people, I would have assumed would average about two wild pitches a season, but he's there. Ken Giles is in fourth with 14, although he threw a fraction of the innings of the names in front of him. That surprises me less. The last thing I wanted to add, because we, uh, we've we already recorded our Indian segment, although the listeners are not aware of it yet, but in that Indian segment, we did mention the name Brandon Geyer, and Brandon Geyer is of note statistically for basically one reason, and it's that he is as good at getting hit as he is at getting hits, and I get curious about how much of this is a skill, because you mentioned that Geyer's hit by a pitch in the segment in front of us. I'm seeing into the future. You mentioned <laughs> that his hit by pitches have gotten bigger. I was curious what he was in the minors. So I'm going to read a decade of Brandon Geyer's hit by pitch totals by season, okay. starting in 2007. I will not say the year. 7, 13, 10, 7, 12, 3. He must have been hurt that year. 14, 11, 24, 31. So Brandon Geyer hit by pitch rate, he has exploded the last two years, although thankfully he has not actually (laughs) exploded. And he's also someone who's been platooned a lot during his career. He's a righty who mostly, well, I guess evenly faces lefties. And when righties have pitched to Brandon Geyer, they have hit him less than 4% of the time. However, when lefties have faced Brandon Geyer, they have hit him more than 8% of the time. One in 12 plate appearances that Brandon Geyer gets against a left-handed pitcher ends with the left-handed pitcher giving Brandon Geyer a bruise. Last year, he was actually closer to one in seven. 152 (laughs) plate appearances against lefties, and Brandon Geyer got hit 20 times. I know that it's not original anymore to write an article about Brandon Geyer getting hit by pitches, but it's absolutely remarkable how often Brandon Geyer gets hit by pitches. And yeah, I... Yeah, just another statistically nerdy way to look forward to the season ahead just to see if he can improve on the rate. But it's already history, but why not build on it, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so let us get to the previews. And let them insult your body With fineries and silk and things How could you not have known you wouldn't need those rings for this scene? When it's called goddess of drought, figures us out. When it's called goddess of drought, figures us out. So we are joined now to talk about the Cleveland Indians by Pete Beatty, who is a freelance writer and editor for many an outlet and once had a tweet about baseball published in the New York Times. Hi, Pete. Hey, how's it going, Ben? So I guess we should start with when we last saw the Indians, which I'm sure was an emotionally challenging moment for you in many ways. How did it feel to root for a team that has its own tortured history and a lifelong championship drought and at the same time to play the foil for a team with a more famous tortured history and lifelong championship drought? Uh, I think it befitted Cleveland's sort of legacy and heritage as uh, they can't even be the best at being the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've seen the famous We're Not Detroit sort of parody video, <laughs> yes. um, sort of it's mm-hmm. the, the second biggest city with you know terrible poverty and you know structural inequality and they sort of can't even be the most famous you know long time title drought we had to had to run into the cubs but because of the nature and it was a, a really emotional experience i was actually in chicago for game 5 because i felt like the universe was just telling me trevor bauer was going to improbably you know, throw a one hitter or whatever, and we were going to clinch at Wrigley. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that didn't work out, and I didn't 
couldn't get into the stadium for less than you know $1,200 or whatever. So I wound up watching at a, a, a bar full of Cubs fans, which is probably the absolute <laughs> worst place uh, to watch uh, a, a World Series game that your team is playing in against the Cubs. But it was really, you know, last the playoffs last year were such found money. I think um, mm-hmm. after Carrasco went down, after Danny, Danny Salazar went down and Trevor Bauer sliced off half his finger, you know, sort of had, I would say, one and a half functional major league starters with Kluber <laughs> and, um, you know, Josh Tomlin when he was when he was on. So to, to take the Cubs to game seven of the World Series, it's, it's really hard to be disappointed as as rough as it was to lose in game seven it was just such a good series you can't really be mad so mm-hmm. of course you uh you say that it was appropriate to be the second most losery team in the world series but of course now as a direct result of what the indians did and what the cubs did you are now the first most losery team <laughs> uh is that a different feeling is this in any way appropriate as a follow-up or is this like new ground for you i mean i think it's uh it's exciting to be to be the, you know the, the the most losery team. I am convinced in my heart. I'm a fairly superstitious person that the Indians or the Spiders, as I sometimes like to call them, will not win the World Series until Chief Wahoo goes away. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know we're not the Padres. That's sort of my my mantra as far as uh, star-crossed franchises go. It does. It is. It is a nice special. It's a good feeling to say you know we have the longest. Uh, we had the longest no World Series streak since 1948. And now that the Cavs won a title, I think it really eased the sort of existential angst of the Cleveland sports fan of like, you know, we can never have nice things. You know, having that sort of the monkey off the back, I think makes this imminently more bearable. And Chief Wahoo's demise could be coming, right? I mean, it seemed like that for a while and it's kind of made some improbable comebacks, but it seems like they are kind of devoted to getting rid of it, or at least maybe Rob Manford is devoted to making them get rid of it. I don't know what exactly the latest is. There were going to be some discussions, and I don't know whether anything came out of that, anything tangible, but it definitely seems like if that's the only obstacle between the Indians and the World Series seems like that obstacle might be removed sooner than later, no? Yeah, totally achievable. And, you know, Rob Manfred sort of dropped that slightly veiled comment about how, you know, there have been discussions about discussions about Chief Wahoo and the team knows how the MLB offices feel. So and I, I do think just that from a business, you know, best practices perspective, it's not good to have a screamingly racist caricature on, you know, your work outfit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So what is your level of affection slash appreciation for Terry Francona after watching him in the postseason last year and just for a few years with the Indians, all the little things he does, the platoon advantage stuff and the reliever stuff and also just the funny quotes and the seeming to set everyone at ease constantly from afar. I don't know if he's maybe the most widely revered manager at this point, but he's probably neck and neck with anyone else. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, it gets down into sort of like intangibles or vibes, you know, and steamer and Pakoda don't have projections for vibes, but with Francona, it just seems like everybody's going to be bought in. The team seems to the extent that you can remote analyze the psychology of a group of, you know, 25 people you've never met. They seem happy and sort of bought in. And that's, I think it's all down to Francona. 
because he got more out of talent that, you know, in the Manny Acta era, guys who weren't maybe unlocking their potential. Um, I mean, you just can't really argue with a guy who has been at the World Series now three times, especially with, again, he managed a team whose two starting pitchers were Corey Kluber and Josh Tomlin to Game 7 of the World Series. Uh, you can't really argue with that. Although I do think he rode Andrew Miller a tiny bit too hard. Because if Andrew Miller doesn't give up the home run to David Ross, not to to what if Game 7, you know, it could have been, Indians could have won. But <laughs> I guess you, uh, does that mean that you can't argue with Eric Hinsky because he also went to the World Series three times? No, yeah. Eric Hinsky, I think, is probably... That he's just a winner. <laughs> he's a proven, <laughs> he wasn't, he's a proven winner. Yeah, proven um, winner who's batted a career nine times in the playoffs despite constant <laughs> appearances. Uh, you you had referred earlier to uh, the playoffs this last year being kind of found money, which is a a feeling I totally get. But as I am sure you are aware, the Indians are now projected as the strong, overwhelming favorites in the American League Central. Just looking at a. Uh, at Fangraphs right now, they have a, a nine-game projected lead over the Tigers, and of course the Royals are there being their unpredictable selves, but whatever. They're not very good. The Indians are one of, I don't know, I guess six. Is six too many dominant projected teams? It feels like there's six dominant projected teams, and the Indians are one of them. Yeah. So are you able to internalize? Does it feel like they are a one of the real favorites this year, or are, is it hard to adjust from being the whole you know previous underdog thing? Well, it's it's sort of it's the like so underrated they're overrated phenomenon where I think people maybe hadn't seen uh, particularly Kluber even though he had won a Cy Young you know when he was really locked in in the playoffs last year people were saying like who the hell is this guy is like well do you watch baseball you know we had a, a, a selection you know a, a really really strong front of the rotation and you know an offense that was just good enough to maybe do something and they did something despite you know losing Brantley and, and losing a bunch of pitchers so now I think that the pressure of being expected to win the division is it's there I, I, you know it, it definitely you know I would rather feel like hey you know we're frisky and we have a chance like uh <laughs> you know there's two or three potential all-stars in there as the line goes in major league then feeling like we're supposed to win the division because it's obviously that's that's when it goes wrong but you know the al central is pretty pretty crappy right now so the tigers like the old days yep the way it ought to be (laughs) so you mentioned brantley and if you go to a depth chart right now he's on it he's penciled into a position and i know he's taking things a little more slowly in spring training than the other healthier position players are but this guy was so good not all that long ago and that the indians did what they did last year despite getting worse than nothing from him really was pretty impressive do you expect to get better than nothing from him this year (laughs) i i honestly don't know he's been slow walked back I mean, they clearly rushed him back a little bit last year. And, you know, there was another surgery on top of the surgery that he was rehabbing from. And now they're saying he's going to miss time in spring training. So I'm just going to assume, you know, we're going to get half a season of diminished performance from Michael Brantley. It seems unrealistic or it seems a little crazy to expect him to go back to being the really, you know, dominant force that he was in uh, 2014 and 2015. Last year... Uh, related to underperforming players. Last year, the best offensive catcher on the Cleveland Indians was Chris Jimenez. Yes. <laughs> and the uh, the two who played the most, Jan Gomes and Roberto Perez, I don't want to sit here and talk about batting average, but actually we can we can do this a few ways. They both batted under 200. They both had OPPs <laughs> under 300, and they both had OPSs under 600. And so the end result was that the Cleveland Indians last year 
had the worst offensive catchers in baseball, worse than the Padres, which I'm surprised saying that out loud. The Padres had a 602 <laughs> OPS from the catchers. The Indians came in at 564, which is odd because both Perez and Gomes have been pretty good all-around players before. They both looked like they were like really talented defensive catchers who were having some offensive breakouts. So what happened with both of them, and what do you think is going to happen with both of them? Because they have both at different times been considered potential building blocks and neither one of them is old. Yeah, I think it was definitely there was there was a fair amount of of drama, you know, around the the Lucre uh, almost in the trade that wasn't. And the Indians clearly wanted to improve their offensive performance from catcher last year. And I think Roberto Perez maybe had more home runs in the playoffs than he did in the entire uh, regular season, and that seems right. He sort of woke up. Neither one of them is going to be a great hitter. Uh, I do think that Jan Gomes' numbers from last year look especially bad. Uh, He's a pretty volatile performer uh, to begin with, but they look especially bad because he went on a... It is correct, by the way, that Roberto Perez had three home runs in the playoffs and three home runs in the regular season. Um, (laughs) And he he went on a really, 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 really cold streak. I mean, it was something like an 0 for 50 streak. Got a hustle double in a game. And I think in the process of doing that, separated his shoulder or screwed up his arm or something. So his numbers look especially bad. You know, I'm over fifty. Yeah, it was it was really <laughs> astonishing. It got to the point where they actually the lamented Mike Napoli, who whose vibes will definitely be missed, actually conducted a, a voodoo ritual in the locker room involving um, the Joe Boo statue from Major League, and that was clearly what cursed him. You know, they you don't never steal Joe Boo's. Wrong. It's very bad. Okay, so it's all better now. Yeah, presumably Napoli's gone. Jobu is gone. Yankoms should be back. <laughs> Jose Ramirez got a lot better last year. I don't know if a lot of people were projecting that or expecting that, but he was someone that I think a lot of people took note of in the playoffs because he did some good things, particularly in the World Series and in the ALDS, and maybe he was someone who would kind of slipped under the radar on a national level at least throughout the regular season so is that just who he is now just a really talented just above average hitter guy who can play multiple positions well I mean that's just a he was like a four-win player last year and he was 23 yeah I think he's he uh Ramirez like a lot of people had been I think particularly from like the fantasy baseball lens and sort of saying like hey you know this guy's got like sort of bad luck with Babip, you know, he's a breakout waiting to happen. And it really, you know, came through last year in non-fantasy ways and sort of reality-based uh, ways. Um, I am still scorched. My eyebrows were singed by the Johnny Peralta experience where he had a career <laughs> year, uh, like so many people, Johnny Peralta broke my heart. He had a career year really young. And so for the rest of his tenure with the Indians, everybody was sort of waiting for him to repeat that great season he had when he was 21. So I don't want to just expect that Jose Ramirez is going to do that every year, but I do think he's going to be a versatile, above-average player with really like an 80 swag tool. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No one is as good as... Jose Ramirez is a very good baseball player, but I don't think any baseball player is as good as Jose Ramirez thinks Jose Ramirez is, uh, which is really outstanding. Speaking of players who think that they might be the best players... I wonder, I've never been a fan of a team that has Trevor Bauer on it, but he is self-described the most scientific player in baseball. <laughs> and he, 
he's clearly been followed by a reputation for a while. It's, he's put some unusual uh, research into his crafts. I don't need to go into detail. Everybody knows what the deal is with Trevor Bauer. But I've never been a fan of a team that's had him. And if you look over his history, he's thrown more than 500 major league innings. He's got a mid-fours ERA. The peripherals are there to support it. What is the experience actually like? Do you look at Trevor Bauer and still think there's an ace in here that's waiting to be unlocked? Or, or do you fig- figure he's just a guy who does research who, at the end of the day, is just kind of a league average wild starting pitcher? Uh, I like to think of him as the prog rock Jason Marquis. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's so frustrating because if he wasn't Trevor Bauer, he could use the skills that he has to be maybe even a slightly above average major league starter. Definitely a really, really solid middle of the rotation guy. But he can't help, you know, trying to throw eight different pitches. And he has, I think it would be fair to Trevor Bauer to say that he has a little bit of an attitude problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, doing things like cutting his finger off with a drone during the ALCS, getting into flame wars on Twitter with people. Mm-hmm. It's frustrating. I, you know, I would, to put it in perspective, I really wouldn't mind if they traded him for somebody's, you know, best AAA starter, uh, <laughs> even if that guy was, you know, had an ERA a half run higher, because then I wouldn't have to watch Trevor Bauer pitch. Once yeah, once a week. in a, in scouting parlance, he doesn't have the good face. No, no, <laughs> yeah, major major bad face. <laughs> So you said that maybe Andrew Miller was overworked slightly there at the end. What is the proper amount of work for regular season Andrew Miller? Because, of course, the experimentation and the non-traditional roles, that started as soon as he arrived in Cleveland and maybe people weren't paying as much attention until they got to the playoffs and really went extreme with it out of necessity. But how much can they get away with and should they try to get away with when you're talking about 162 games and you also hopefully want him to have something left when they get back to October? I mean, I think you saw this too with um, Dylan Batances at the end of last year where he just fell apart. He was mm-hmm. cooked because he just pitched so much. And I hope they don't. I would really like to see Miller on a short leash. As cute as the him coming in in the fifth inning is and how it can really you know, the leverage sort of tables dictate that it might make the most sense. I think the stakes are so much different in the World Series and in the, in the postseason that there's really no reason to use them like that during the regular season, except, you know, the Indians are in the position of luxury of having effectively two closers, you know, one who's right-handed and one who's left-handed, where they can kind of play the percentages and do that. So you're going to see him, you know, in the seventh inning, eighth inning every once in a while, but I would really like for him to pitch like 60 innings, you know, during the regular season, if that was possible. Um, Is that kind of where Boone Logan comes in to hopefully ease the regular regular season load? Yeah, Uh, Boone Logan, who is in that sort of like vampire-aged lefty specialist sort of thing. (laughs) I think he's he killed Joe Bimal and took his uh, became (laughs) the the Highlander. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that's what what Boone Logan is 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 about, and I think that's great. Honestly, if if the Indians were guaranteed a playoff spot, I would say just please in case Andrew Miller and Carbonite and, you know, unfreeze him, you know, at the beginning of September so we can get over the, the sleeping sickness. <laughs> <laughs> so were you pleasantly surprised that Edwin Encarnacion was signed? I don't think of the Indians typically as the destination for one of the big name free agents, but of course this was a weak class and they had a need and he ended up signing for a lot less than people had projected that he would sign so were you expecting some signing on that level at least or did that come as a pleasant surprise 
Oh, it was great. I was excited. I mean, it was one of those things where like, you know, I you know, got to my phone and saw that I had 10 texts and I had assumed either, you know, someone I know had died or uh, <laughs> something good had happened. And it was really exciting. It was really cool. It was like, a you know, nobody died. It was the opposite of somebody dying. I do, I do have sort of like a beat down Cleveland sports fan mentality, especially a Cleveland sports fan of my age, who, you know, grew up going to games at the old stadium when they were really hopeless, that not only, you know, this is sort of, we shouldn't have nice things because it always ends badly, especially after the Nick Swisher disaster. I mean, he just such a bad contract that really sort of screwed the Indians up for a couple of years, uh, mm -hmm. roster construction-wise. Encarnacion seems great. You know, you always have to wonder about a guy with sort of like old player skills who is basically, mm -hmm. you know, a slugger who's a relatively not terrible, but pretty immobile first baseman. We already have one of those guys. So, you know, but the three years thing, I think, mitigates that considerably. And yeah, I, I really, I'm over the moon. I think it's great. I was worried for a minute when there were rumors about Jose Bautista because, uh, speaking of bad face. But, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's I think it's fantastic. And I think most importantly, it's, it's, it shows to me that the team understands that their window is not, it's not closed, but 2017 is as open as it's going to get. I, uh... Mm -hmm. I consider it, as previously discussed, a blessing. One of my many blessings is that I don't have to watch Trevor Bauer on a regular basis, but one of the ways that I am damned, uh, you could say, is that I also don't get to watch Francisco Lindor on my favorite team every day. So, uh, a simple question, but I guess if you had to put him on the uh, the lovability scale, 20 to 80, where's, uh, where's Lindor for you in terms of most lovable baseball players? I thought it was not possible for me to like him more than I already did until I found out that his alternate career plan, if he didn't make it as a baseball player, was to become a dentist. <laughs> At which point I just sort of had to discard traditional metrics of lovability and just sort of acknowledge that I consider him a member of my family, even if he does not, uh, does not know that. <laughs> I guess I should ask a Tyler and Aikwin question because he was one of the more pleasant surprises of the season. Also, not a particularly young player, never nationally ranked high on any prominent prospect list. And he finished third in the American League Rookie of the Year voting and kind of bailed them out when Brantley couldn't play. And he's turning 26 this April. So again, it's not as if he's this really young, fresh-faced guy, but do you expect him to continue to exceed what people had expected for him? Or was that one of those fluky Bob Hamlin sort of rookie seasons? Yeah, I don't know if I would I would dishonor Tyler Naquin by comparing him to Bob Hamlin. <laughs> I, uh, uh, he's definitely more handsome. The uh, no, Sorry, Bob Hamlin, if you're out there, no disrespect. Um, Some the, disrespect. Uh, so a little. Um, the... Uh, yeah, I don't. I'm Tyler Naquin is not that good. We saw his his best version of himself. Pitchers really figured him out in the second half, and he had a couple brutal outfield misplays um, in the in the postseason in the in the World Series. But I think he seems like a a guy who has great energy, who's versatile, and if he's a part of a platoon approach in center field or in the outfield, I think he's a great piece for us to have. I don't. I think his Wikipedia page will be highlighted by his finishing third in the uh, 2016 <laughs> AL Rookie of the Year vote. So before Ben asks you for a, a win projection, I have a, uh, a comment and a question. First of all, in Bob Hamlin's defense, he had a good rookie season when he was 26. He was an above average hitter when he was 28, and he was an even better hitter when he was 29. I didn't know that either, but he had a little more of a career than 
his reputation uh, lends on. <laughs> so the question is, what percentage... I'm sorry, I'm going to cut you off, but we're getting right yeah. into the question. That wasn't looking for a response. What percentage of Ranagire's body mass is scar tissue? Actually, more than 100, weirdly. <laughs> uh, he has scar tissue that just sort of hovers around him. Um, I'm, I'm not going to... I can't let this Bob Hamlin thing go. I just want to point <laughs> out that AL Rookie of the Year, he, he won it over Manny Ramirez, which is just nonsense. <laughs> nonsense. Um, <laughs> You know, you know, it was a half season, so I think that's where some of my uh, some of my uh, deep seated animosity towards Bob Hamlin that I was not aware of until this phone call. Uh, so looking from. over this, nine <laughs> players got Rookie of the Year votes in the AL that year. Eleven in the NL. I wonder, without doing the work, did Bob Hamlin end up having the worst career out of all twenty of those players? I mean, there's like <laughs> uh, Manny Ramirez, Rusty Greer, Chris Gomez, whatever, Jeffrey Hammonds, Jim Edmonds is there, Ryan Klesko. We don't need to go name by name, but like this is. Actually, a remarkable list of players, and also Bob Hamlin. Uh, also, Bill Risley was definitely just made up. Like that is like a <laughs> that's just like the Madden computer generating a name. There was no one named Bill Risley who ever played for the Mariners. Just in the AL list, there's a Chris Gomez, a Brian Anderson, and a Jose Valentin, and I have no idea which of those players they are because it feels like there's been like several dozen of each. <laughs> Brian there's Anderson, only one is William the... Van Landingham, and he yes. has. He got nine points that year. <laughs> Almost as many points as letters in his last name. <laughs> All right. I'm going to close. Usually we close with one prediction. I'm going to ask you three. So Geyer has gone from 11 hit by pitches in 2014 to 24 in 2015 to 31 in 2016. Can he top that this year? care to make a prediction for Brandon Geyer hit by pitches and I guess I'm I'm really asking you to project Brandon Geyer playing time to a certain extent there also so that's that's one prediction I guess we can take them one at a time do you have an answer for that one I think Brandon Geyer is going to play in 82 games and I think he's going to get hit by 82 pitches (laughs) (laughs) okay next question the Indians had the fifth highest per game attendance increase last year in Major League Baseball, but still finished with the third worst attendance in Major League Baseball. So they increased by about 2,300 fans per game last year, and we're still at a lowly million point six or so of attendance. They're coming off, obviously, a very successful season. They made it to Game 7 of the World Series. Will the fans come out? What will the average attendance increase per game be this year? I think, honestly, it's going to be just last year in reverse, unless they make it to the playoffs again, or they'll have a big turnout and then it'll just go back to where it was. I don't know what the deal is with Indians fans. Like, I love Cleveland. I am from Cleveland. And I don't mean this with any, you know, well, a little bit of... Uh, contempt. There's not that much stuff to do in Cleveland. So there's absolutely no reason to not go to a very, very good baseball team for really cheap. Um, So Cleveland fans, get your mind right. (laughs) Okay. And lastly, just the boring prediction. We always ask, how many games will this team win? I think they're going to win 94 games again. I think that is that how many they won last year? I think they'll just do exactly what they did last year, but with someone else. I have a feeling... My money, I like Yandy Diaz. I think he's going to come up and be this year's Jose Ramirez. Uh, but yeah, 94 <laughs> games. I think then that could be wind up with 92 or, you know, 98. Who knows? All right. Well, you can find Pete's work at PeteBeatty.org. You can find him on Twitter at Pete Beatty. 
enjoy your new status as <laughs> biggest loser. <laughs> Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I will. All right, we'll be right back to talk about the White Sox with Kat Garcia. It's been real hot since the knee hot. Days of you feeling good and real spot. Avid combos. Hear those bongos? Boom, kakaboom. That's how they go. Okay, so it is time now to talk about the White Sox. And to do that, we have recruited another guest. She is a writer for Baseball Prospectus, BP Wrigleyville, BP Southside, the Baseball Prospectus Annual. Her name is Kat Garcia. Hey, Kat. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So I saw on Twitter that you recently described the time between the end of the World Series and the start of spring training as a black hole of questioning your existence. So congratulations on the end of that period, I guess. <laughs> yes, there is a light at the end of the, the black hole or the tunnel, however you'd prefer <laughs> to call it. But I think a lot of us feel that way. Yeah. Well, to be clear, though, we're referring to the 2017 White Sox as the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> hey, at least there will be bodies playing baseball on the field. At this point, they may not be you know, the most optimal. It feels more like I took a time machine back to the 2013 White Sox, but at least there's a little bit more hope on the horizon this season. So if I can just ask you before we get to the team, how does being a White Sox lifer and a Cubs supporter, as you describe yourself in your bio, work? How do you see both sides? Uh, Well, I think once you start working in baseball, you sort of lose that fandom, that tenacious fandom. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if you all know, but I do work at Wrigley Field. This will be my fourth season there. Uh So it's kind of hard throughout the season to detach myself from the Cubs being around them, being around their fans. Most of my friends are Cubs fans. And obviously, it's been a very exciting past couple seasons for the Cubs. So, I mean, I I definitely support them, but I will never identify as a fan. Deep down inside, I am still a tortured but loving White Sox fan and always will be. I would think that surrounding yourself with Cubs fans might make it easier to remove yourself from Cubs fandom, but I guess maybe I'm speaking out of turn. (laughs) Oh, you see it a little bit more. You see that homerism a lot more coming out when you're kind of on the outside looking in. Well... If uh, if the Cubs became lovable for being an underdog, you, uh, we don't have many underdogs greater than this year's White Sox. But as you've mentioned, at least they've chosen a direction and there is some element of hope because the team has gotten a lot younger and a lot more excitingly younger, to make an adverb out of an adjective. But <laughs> Rick Hahn did say the other day that if he had his druthers, he would make about four more moves, which pointed, I think, pretty clearly to four players remaining on the roster right now. But... What is, I guess, in a season where, let's be realistic, the White Sox probably aren't going to win even 75 games. What is the one thing that you are most excited about watching this year, aside from just having baseball at all? I think for a lot of White Sox fans, the focus is going to be turned more to the development of the prospects. This is going to be a year where people are definitely going to be prospect watching more than they are going to be, I think, watching the major league team, with the exception of you know, watching Quintana continue his dominance, what he's been doing, you know, given the fact that he's still on the team, watching how Tim Anderson continues to progress in the majors. But I think it's going to be a lot of seeing how the development goes in the minors, seeing when, you know, Yon Mankata comes up, uh, if Zach Birdie comes up, how he contributes to the pen. It's just going to be a lot more looking towards the prospect end of things. Mm -hmm. And 
had you been hoping for this for a long time? Had you been one of the impatient White Sox fans who was sick of them trying to compete and kind of ending up in that middle ground where they weren't rebuilding, but they also weren't really mounting any serious threat? Did you think that what they did this winter was long overdue? I wouldn't say long overdue. I knew that it was always an idea in the back of Rick Hahn's mind. I know at last year's Sox Fest, not this past one, he did say after all those moves had happened and, you know, people felt a little bit more hopeful going into 2016 that if this didn't work out, which obviously it, it definitely did not, that a total rebuild was on the table. And I felt very much that he meant that. And obviously he did. So I think he chose the right time to kind of say, all right, enough is enough. We're going to have to go big or go home. And they they certainly did that. They've been making a splash at the winter meetings for the last three seasons in a row, whether it be acquisitions or trades or, or whatever the case may be. So let's just hope that it ends up being worth it. Mm-hmm. And when you finally decide to pull that trigger and tear things down, you have to make sure that those big moves go well because you only get one chance to trade Chris Sale and you have to maximize your return. So given what they did this winter, did you feel that they did the best job they could? Were you happy with the return? Honestly, I mean, yes. Acquiring the number one prospect in baseball in Yon Mankata is absolutely amazing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, then going after Lucas Giolito with the Adam Eaton trade, they definitely maximize their return, especially with the Eaton trade. I mean, I know there is, there's two sides that people see that perhaps, you know, the, the Nats loss or the Sox kind of ran away with, you know, a little too much for Eaton because there was a lot of question around his value since Eaton did have such a successful season on the South side. But I really am happy with the return that they got from both of those trades. And I think right now, I mean, rebuilds take a few years. What I think a lot of people didn't understand is that, sure, Quintana doesn't need to be moved right now. You know, there were questions about whether Melky Cabrera or Todd Frazier would be moved. Rebuilds take time. They don't need to blow this whole thing up in one off season. And Rick Khan's obviously made that clear. He says, you know, going into spring training now, they're kind of cooling off on the trade discussions and focusing more on entering the season with what they have. I was uh I was going to ask you a question because I was scrolling down the depth chart and I saw James Shields, but then I looked at James Shields and it made me sad. So I'm going to ask you a question instead about Charlie Tilson, who's got the inside job for center field. The White Sox, of course, I think a lot more loaded on the the pitching side than on the position player side. That much is no secret. But Charlie Tilson is kind of a uh, a blind spot. The White Sox picked him up last year and he got immediately injured and he missed all of what would have been his big league cup of coffee. But they got him from the Cardinals very quietly. What can you tell us about Charlie Tilson? Because I think that he is one of the least familiar starting players in all of baseball right now. Right. Well, obviously, he did tear his hamstring in his debut. I believe he didn't even make it through two or three innings. He's like, he's going to be the starting center fielder for the White Sox right now since they do have that gaping hole that was left by Adam Eaton. He has a lot of speed. I'm not sure... Obviously, they're saying that his recovery from the injury is going well, you know, that right now the center field job is kind of his to lose, but I don't think that there's any other kind of person in the organization to fill those shoes for an everyday starter. He's toolsy. He's got some issues at the plate, but I think if he can really kind of get himself together this season and adjust to major league pitching, and as long as he retains that speed, 
He's going to be great in the outfield. He's going to be great on the base pads, which is, you know, very promising. But then again, he is Charlie Tilson. He is trying to replace Adam Eaton, you know. And like you said, he is not very well known throughout the league. So he is going to kind of be, I don't want to say disappointing, but underwhelming, even if he is completely successful in what he does. Mm -hmm. And Tim Anderson was the guy, I guess, who was the headliner in the system during the lean years for prospects. We finally saw him last year. He came up and he did what Tim Anderson does, which is strike out a lot and not walk. He struck out 117 (laughs) times in 410 at-bats, which is a lot of strikeouts, but also not a lot of walks. He only walked 13 times, and he managed to be close to a league average hitter despite that maybe mostly because of a a hot streak when he started. He didn't finish quite as strong, but he was good. He was valuable because he was good defensively and he kept his offense high enough. Do you think he can continue to do that with that approach or do you think he can improve the approach? I think he did show a few signs of being able to be a little bit more patient at the plate. He was taking a little more walks because I believe, I don't remember how long it was until he took his first walk, but it was a very long time. And then he went through a period where he started taking more walks. Obviously, it still wasn't as many as many would like to see. But he's a contact guy, and that coupled with his speed definitely makes him the kind of guy who can stretch, you know, one player's single into a double. I think he's got a lot of really good baseball IQ. There was questions about whether or not he would be able to stick at shortstop, but he seems to have impressed in that position. But like you said, he did have a very hot first half. The league always adjusts, but the question then becomes, how will he adjust back? And I just have a very good feeling about him. There's just signs that you can tell that he's going to be able to kind of adjust his approach at the plate. And I think he may never be the type of player who's going to take a lot of walks. He is going to be a high strikeout guy. But like I said, that contact and the speed mixed together are definitely going to be an asset for him. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of, uh, I'm struck by the unfamiliarity of some players on this White Sox depth chart as as I'm scrolling down. And as Charlie Tilson is interesting because of his speed and also, I guess, his immediate injury. There's another player who shows up here, Omar Novaez. He played a little bit last year with the White Sox, but he's another regular player on the team that I would assume pretty much nobody knows. And I wanted to ask you because I'm looking over his his record and a couple of years ago, he was uh, was a pretty terrible hitter. And last season, he was a, a fairly terrible hitter. So when I see that in a young catcher, I usually conclude, okay, well, he's got to be great in the field, but he's he doesn't stand out for his, his throwing arm. And looking at the numbers on baseball prospectus, he's actually rated as a below average pitch framer in the majors and the minors. So what a, in the most Jerry Seinfeld way possible, what is the deal <laughs> with Omar Narvaez? Um, the thing that's actually interesting is the White Sox have not always weighed framing as heavily as other organizations have. They've been a little bit behind the curve on that. But there was actually recently an article at The Athletic by James Vegan that stated that the White Sox are trying to work with Narvaez to kind of make his framing skills a little bit better and stronger this season so that what they're lacking from him at the plate, they're getting from him behind the plate. They're starting to realize that framing is a very big part of, you know, the future of baseball and having traded away Tyler Flowers or getting rid of him after one of his strongest framing seasons kind of 
put the focus on the fact that they were not valuing that as an organization, framing skills. But I think they've kind of turned the corner there and are seeing that they need to work on that sort of development. And they've stated that they are. And what about Carlos Rodon? August Fagerstrom wrote something about him at Fangraphs about how he had seemingly improved his changeup and come to trust it more in the second half of the season and his results improved too. How good do you expect him to be this year? I think this is it for him. I think he's finally clicked. That changeup was definitely something that was holding him back for a while. And now that he's sort of perfected that and added that pitch to his repertoire, We've seen the results last year. We've seen how strong he can be. I think that in 2017, we're going to see a solid, true portrayal of his abilities. And we're just going to see him kind of move up from there. I don't really think there's going to be a lot of room for regression from him now that he's clicked. You know, he obviously works very well with Don Cooper. Last year, when I spoke to Cooper at SoxFest about Rodon, he said that they were working on some things. He kind of didn't really specifically mention them to me. But obviously, whatever the things were that they were working on with Rodon clicked. And I think that, you know, once that happens, they're there to stay. And Jeff has written a few times about Lucas Giolito and why the Nationals were willing to part with him. And, of course, there's been a lot of discussion about whether his ceiling is still as high as everyone thought it was a year or two ago. He was the best pitching prospect in baseball. Maybe he still is. Who knows? Opinions are very divided. What are you hoping for? What's your realistic expectation for Giolito? One of the main things that people were concerned about was with the way the Nationals sort of tinkered with his mechanics, and that's how he lost spin rate. He started losing velocity slowly. So one of the main things that the White Sox have said is that they don't they want to keep it simple with him. They want to kind of go back to basics and just let him do his own thing and see where they can go from there. Don Cooper obviously has been, you know, pretty much a magician with pitchers and their health, you know, so far with the White Sox. So I think if there's anyone who's going to be able to get Giolito back to that number one prospect status, uh, it's definitely going to be Cooper. And I think that, you know, we've seen how tinkering with mechanics can really be detrimental to a player's, you know, sort of game. And I think with Giolito, that's the perfect example. I mean, he was this amazing number one pitching prospect and the Nationals kind of toyed with him a little bit. And now he needs to just kind of get back to the basics. And that's what the White Sox said is their number one priority with him to see if they can get him back to that status. The the White Sox clearly have moved away from the stars and scrubs approach with which they tried to win the last few years. But when they were at least attempting to be competitive, one of the most visible stars was Jose Abreu, who had the breakthrough rookie campaign when he was one of the best hitters on the planet. The next year he was worse, but still quite good. And then last year it was, of course, a mixed bag. So Abreu for the first half of the season was a basically average hitter. And then in the second half, he looked a lot more familiar, but he's he's 30 years old now, recently 30 years old. And what, I guess, a two-part question, what do you think happened to Jose Abreu in the first half last year while the team around him was being successful? And, and how much do you think Abreu has left in the tank as the White Sox look to presumably move him off the roster before too long? Well, as much as we in baseball like to look at, you know, the numbers and things like that, there is also the human factor. And there was a lot of, there were a lot of issues that Abreu was going through you know, with his family life and things with his son and just personal issues that obviously affect you on the field. And people really discount that a lot. And I think that that honestly had a lot to do with it because we did see him heat up a little bit in the second half. 
So I don't think that the Abreu from years past is necessarily gone. Like I said, perhaps, you know, the first year it can always be, you know, a little bit of smoke and mirrors because you never know how much of it is just that the league hasn't adjusted back to the player at the plate yet. I think Abreu still, again, he is 30, like you said, so he is kind of reaching that peak. But we have seen a lot of players at that age still, you know, continue to succeed for a very long time. Abreu's been healthy, you know, he's strong, he's athletic. I think we do have a lot more to see from him. And he could possibly, depending on how the year goes for him, he could be, you know, a valuable trade ship for this White Sox rebuild. However, I'm not sure he's going to be one of the number one pieces that they would want to give away. They'd probably have to get a lot in return to, you know, want to give up someone like Abreu. Have you developed any profile of Don Cooper and what it is exactly that he does because he's been there for a long time and you mentioned the injury record and if you look over a long period it's striking how well the White Sox have prevented injuries among their pitchers and I don't know that I could exactly describe what it is that he does the way that we could say that oh well Ray Searage does this to pitchers and that to pitchers not sure I know what it is that Don Cooper does exactly so what would you say if you could encapsulate the the Don Cooper experience? That's one of the things that's so fascinating about Don Cooper is that his ways are very elusive. Obviously, uh-huh. they're very old school because I remember the very first time I met him, I walked up to him and he asked me who I was with. And I said, baseball prospectus. And he goes, who's that? And I uh-huh. said, they're, they're a publication that deals with a lot of statistics. He's like, oh, oh, those sabermetric things, that. (laughs) And that's immediately when I knew that I wasn't going to be able to have that sort of conversation with him in depth. Uh So I think he works a lot with mechanics, with a lot of, you know, sort of like the scouting side of things. He doesn't really care for the numbers, obviously. So I'm not really sure. You're never really sure what that magic is that he has, like you said. But it's definitely it doesn't have to do with the spreadsheets. It has to do with him physically working with the players and finding what works for them. Obviously, you know, the one player we saw that that didn't really meld well with was Jeff Samarja. That just didn't work out for some reason. But with everyone else, if there's anyone that can, you know, fix Lucas Giolito or work with James Shields or Derek Holland even, it's definitely Don Cooper that I would trust, whatever it is that he's doing. <laughs> whether it be witchcraft or what we don't know (laughs) yeah i remember when he turned around matt thornton after he came over from the mariners and that was when it kind of clicked for me that all right cooper might have a little idea of what he's doing with the pitching mechanics when he can make Mm -hmm. the worst strike thrower in baseball turn into a 98 mile per anyway we don't need to talk about matt thornton that's a decade ago i have a question for you Uh, a little bit of i guess projection trivia in a sense last november the White Sox claimed off waivers from the Athletics left-handed pitcher Giovanni Soto. And in January, about a month ago, the White Sox signed to a minor league contract with an invitation to spring training, catcher Giovanni Soto. So of the two Giovanni Sotos on the <laughs> White Sox roster, who do you think is going to end up being worth more wins above replacement between Soto and Soto? I think it's going to be neck and neck because behind the plate, Soto, the catcher. Um, we haven't seen much from him in recent uh, time that he's been with the White Sox that we're uh, that excited about. So, and the pitcher, I mean, someone who's claimed off waivers, who obviously we've seen a lot of players claimed off waivers that can turn into, you know, someone amazing. So I think it's going to be kind of neck and neck there, but it also depends how much playing time we see from Soto behind the plate. 
because like you were saying earlier with Omar Narvaez being kind of new um, and we're not sure if Zach Collins is going to be coming up or if Kevin Smith is going to be put on the roster. It kind of depends on that. But either one of them, it's not like it's a really uh, tough, tough race there. I think it's going to be pretty close. Okay, so who is on the White Sox now? who will not be on the White Sox on August 1st, do you think? And as they maybe trade off some of the remaining veterans that you're about to name, is there any particular area you would be trying to target if you were Rickon? Maybe the White Sox are still in that stage where you just go for the best available prospects, but if there's any particular weakness, whether it's on the major league roster or in the system that you'd like to see them shore up, that's what I'm wondering. I think the outfield is going to be uh, a little bit worrisome. Obviously, we still have Abisail Garcia in right field after all these years. Um, <laughs> Charlie Tilson is, as of right now, looking to be the opening day center fielder. Melky Cabrera has one more year left on his contract. So after that, it's kind of like, where do they go from there? As far as who won't be on the roster on August 1st, I want to say that who seems most likely would be Jose Quintana, but that also depends on how desperate certain teams are to fill a hole. You know, perhaps they have an injury or they're in contention and didn't expect to be, so they're willing to give up a lot. That's the time when you kind of dangle the players that you have, you know, as bait. The thing is with people like Frazier and Cabrera is they both only have one year. 2017 is the last year on their contract. So they would have to be playing very, very well for teams to be giving up something for them for what would be essentially a rental. And I don't think either of them is really worth that much. But it could be, you know, because like I said, they would be a rental and if the White Sox are not contending, even the smallest piece returned for either of them could be something worthwhile to recon. So, but to to simplify that question, I think Quintana is the number one contender to no longer be on the team on August 1st. So we, uh, we spoke earlier about Lucas Giolito and I'm looking at a fun little quip here on his player page. It says, quote, Giolito's fastball was the primary reason for his poor debut in the majors last season with Washington, February 1st, 2017. Weird story. Giolito sucked in the majors. Anyway, we've seen Giolito have a bad debut, uh, but he's also been called before the best pitching prospect in America. He is six months younger, I guess seven months younger than Reynaldo Lopez, who also came over from the Nationals. And last year, Reynaldo Lopez was better at pretty much every level that he pitched at than Lucas Giolito. But Giolito still has that that prospect name hype. But Lopez seems like he is skyrocketing, at least, and the White Sox picked up on that. So if you had to guess, or maybe you don't have to guess, from which pitcher do you expect more, I guess, in the season ahead and going beyond? Because Lopez seems like he's under the radar. This is a leading question, but I'm setting you <laughs> up. Why is Reynaldo Lopez appropriately underrated? You know, I think, like you said, it's a lot of the uh, the name hype. You know, Giolito was the number one prospect, the pitching prospect in baseball. People would like to still keep that ideal in their mind that he is. Reynaldo Lopez, and we've seen it before across the majors even, is underrated, even though, like you said, he pretty much produced the same quality of work as Giolito. He's ranked, I believe it was number 38 across uh, MLB top prospects. Right now, G- uh, Lopez is fourth in the White Sox system. So I'm not sure who to expect more from. I hate projecting because then when I'm wrong, I just feel like, God dang it, you know? <laughs> oh, but you I think... It. 
<laughs> oh, I know. I need to. That's one thing that I need to work on being okay with is just being wrong all the time because you never know with baseball. Baseball is just, you know. But I think if we can see Don Cooper do a little bit more with Giolito, I'd like to believe that he's going to get back to that status where his name is worth all of the hype. Mm-hmm. Nothing against Ronaldo Lopez. He's great too. But. <laughs> all right. Well, give us a win total prediction for the 2017 White Sox. And then maybe because this will be more interesting to some people, what year would you expect them to peak or whatever, whatever they are attempting to build or rebuild here? What's the year when you are expecting it all to come to fruition? Let's see. This year, I'm going to say that they're probably going to be around 70 wins, and that may be a little hopeful. <laughs> but uh, if Quintana and Rodon can continue to you know, shove like they have been and Quintana stays on the roster long enough, um, <laughs> I believe that it is possible. And as far as when I'm expecting to see the results of this rebuild, I'm going to go with probably – Maybe like the type of 2015 the Cubs had, we would expect to see from the White Sox in 2018. Mm-hmm. But I would expect to see some actual solid results come 2019. Because a lot of these prospects that they did grab this offseason are still quite young, still have some development to you know work on. And like some people say, you know, not all of these guys are going to end up being hits. You know, There's a lot of hit and miss with prospects, especially when you start this young. But it also depends on what they do, what the White Sox do throughout the next couple of off seasons. So, you know, we could escalate that. We could end up seeing them, you know, contending as early as 2018, you know, like Mm -hmm. contending, contending. So, but I'd say 2019 is a safe option to pick. Mm -hmm. All right. Cool. Well, I'm glad for White Sox fans that they have embarked on that process at least. And now you can all become big time prospect junkies because that's the part of the team that is probably the most heartening right now. So thanks for coming on and talking to us. You can find Kat writing again at Baseball Prospectus and the BP local sites for the White Sox and Cubs. And you can find her on Twitter at The Baseball Girl. Thanks, Kat. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. So that is it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support, Patrick Eschenfeld, Greg Danchik, Nick Wilbert, George Bremer, and Matthew Whitrock. Thank you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can contact me and Jeff via email at podcast at fangrass.com or by messaging us through Patreon. And we'll be back on Monday with another preview episode. We'll be talking about the Astros and the Phillies. Have a wonderful weekend, and we will talk to you then. 